Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So November was the month where the time change happened, and that's the one that uh, really seems to mess people up. It also messes up wildlife. Uh, from the perspective that more animals get hit on the highways because we've shifted the time that we're all traveling at dawn and dusk. So we are spending more time driving uh, in the dark in the morning or in the evening. And so there's more collisions. In 2022, there was a study done in the U.S. looking at the daylight savings time change and actually found that there was a 16% increase in deer vehicle collisions uh, right after the time change. Uh, The study found that year-round daylight savings time, so in other words, no more time changes, would prevent almost 37,000 deer deaths, 33 human deaths, and over 2,000 injuries to humans in the United States, along with $1.2 billion in collision costs annually. That's staggering. Uh, I'm sure some of those numbers are probably as high in Canada, especially when you have provinces like um, Uh, Newfoundland that already have really high collisions with moose. Um, So the consequences to people and uh, vehicles and stuff is much more uh, severe than with a deer. But all in all, uh, the time change, uh, for whatever reason they're still hanging on to it for, is is bad, is bad for humans and it's bad for wildlife. Uh, Like I said, it's because... The normal times that we would be commuting to and from work, uh, where we would have been in daylight, either in the morning or still in daylight, coming home in the evening uh, for at least a few more months until winter time gets taken away from us. And of course, uh, driving in the dark, animals are moving more. They're moving more in the rut uh, at that time of the year. And you just can't see as well uh, once things get dark and increases the collision. So if there was ever a reason to um, permanently do away with switching um, from daylight savings, uh, I think this would be a good reason brought forward by hunter conservationists and uh, a lot of wildlife and a lot of human lives would actually be saved by leaving the clock alone. In Alberta, uh, a 
wildlife biologist with Alberta Environment and Parks in the Rocky Mountain House area um, sent a letter to one of the counties, the Brazil counties. Uh, I don't have the exact details of the letter, but my interpretation is, is that the biologist was saying, you got a lot of wildlife conflict in your area that's being attributed to people feeding wildlife. And they, the biologist was encouraging um, the county to pass a bylaw to prohibit wildlife feeding. And so that this is kind of new to me that uh, maybe folks from Alberta could let me know a little bit about how this works. But so the so the county uh, would operate, um, I guess, in BC where I'm from, like a regional district where they would be able to pass bylaws. And then, of course, there's municipalities, uh, towns and cities that can also pass bylaws and, and the province can then pass bylaws. So I'm gathering that each one of those levels would be a government that would have the ability um, to pass bylaws to prevent feeding wildlife. Uh, and from what I saw in this issue, they were talking about feeding foxes, deer, moose, uh, squirrels, and all of this was leading to, uh, I guess, like a lot of um, human wildlife conflict. So the last I read on this, I don't know whether or not the bylaw had been passed by council because the um, the source that I read just said, if approved, um, the prohibition of wildlife feeding bylaw would make it an offense to intentionally feed wildlife within the boundaries of the Brazil County um, in Alberta. So I'm generally in support of, of bylaws, uh, provincial, municipal, that um, prohibit the feeding of wildlife uh, in and around populated areas. There's no doubt about it that a lot of this feeding leads to human wildlife conflict and it also leads to animals being attracted that end up um, dead or injured uh, because of it, whether they're trying to cross highways, uh, whether they're you know birds that are attracted to feeders that are getting killed by people's cats, so on and so on. Uh, it's one of those things where I think people think uh, they're helping wildlife, uh, but in fact, they're actually uh, harming them. And if people just want to see wildlife, you know, rather than them attracting them so that you can watch them out your front window, it's like, get some binoculars and take a nice day and go out in the woods and just like we do when we're hunting and boy, uh, you'll see all kinds of wildlife and you don't have to, uh, give them any food in order to, uh, to experience what we experience, uh, when we're out hunting. Now, the last episode we were talking about, um, some changes in Ontario to the Sunday hunting rule and a listener wrote in and, um, that didn't correct, but added to one of the questions that I had, which is I'm not familiar with the Sunday hunting rule in Western Canada. And so I was really interested if it was just a Eastern Canada phenomenon to have these no hunting uh, on Sunday rules. And the listener wrote in and said, nope, we have them in Alberta, like right next to me uh, here in the uh, 100 series wildlife management units. And I actually also had a friend look this up and there's one one unit in the 700 series uh, where you can't hunt big game with a bow or rifle on Sunday. So those were uh, mostly the 100 series units are in Southern Alberta. So in the prairie areas, um, so lots of agriculture. And um, I don't think it's necessarily a, uh, you know, it, it could sort of go back to, you know, like the, go to church on Sunday thing. And it's the only day of the week where farmers weren't out working hard, uh, on their farms or on their cattle ranches. And so on the day of Sunday, Sunday was the day of rest. Uh, you went to church and you simply just didn't on the day of rest want to hear, uh, gunshots, uh, in the distance. That's my understanding of the Sunday hunting rule. So, uh, the person that wrote in and told me that, yes, Alberta has the Sunday hunting rule as well said, uh, it sucks actually. So for folks that only have Saturdays and Sundays off, 
uh, Saturdays are pretty crowded in places. So um, this individual said you're jockeying your work schedule, trying to, you know, get a day off during the week to try to go out and do some hunting, especially, you know, in and around, um, you know, proximity to the big cities like Calgary, uh, if you're going, you know, south of that. So uh, thanks for that. That was uh, super interesting uh, to me to learn that. So it's part of the the journey that I love going on uh, on this podcast with all of you is uh, is when you write in and, and uh, give me some information like this. So uh, several of the stories that I'm covering here today are actually ones that um, listeners have sent in. Okay, wild pigs. It's always a hot topic. Covered a f- done a few podcasts on that. So, uh, Dr. Ryan Brook from uh, the University of Saskatchewan um, released an updated map showing the occurrences of invasive wild pigs in Canada. And if you zoom in on that map uh, to Jasper National Park uh, in Alberta, it shows that the wild pigs. <laughs> are essentially closing in on the national park uh, if they're not possibly already there. Dr. Brooke um, said these wild pigs kill and eat ground nesting birds, their eggs, small mammals, white-tailed deer, and even elk calves, and possibly caribou calves and moose calves. So we know Jasper National Park is is uh, going to spend whatever it was twenty five million dollars building that um, caribou uh, maternal penning area to try to restore um, the extirpated caribou uh, from the national park. So imagine spending that much money and the invasive wild pigs show up. They can probably smash, dig under, jump over. Uh, the fences and get in there and and uh, wreak havoc on you know uh, a year's worth of effort in growing caribou calves. So that's pretty pretty concerning. Uh, wild pigs are extremely aggressive, and uh, they got those big razor sharp tusks. Some of them can grow to be in excess of what a grizzly bear um, in the Rocky Mountains uh, would weigh. And they definitely don't have a lot of natural predators out there. Dr. Brooke also said that pigs don't have sweat glands, so they wallow in mud to cool off. And by doing that, they can contaminate water with feces and urine that have extremely high levels of salmonella, E. coli, and other harmful microorganisms. Dr. Brooke said this is why wild pigs are referred to as an ecological train wreck. So. They are scattered through uh, Alberta, um, very heavily infested in Saskatchewan, which was kind of like ground zero, and they are scattered uh, in British Columbia as well. So a lot of hunters, uh, you know, you read the different forums and stuff and they're sort of like, hey, what's the problem? They taste great. It's something to hunt. Um Yeah, it's true, uh, but they're not easy to hunt. and I don't think uh, a, a lot of people, a few do, not a lot of people purposely uh, go on pig hunts in Canada. Uh, I, from what I have gathered over the years, uh, a lot of it is just sort of accidental, you know, whatever you're sitting watching. For a buck to come out on the edge of a field in the evening and all of a sudden like a couple of pigs step out and you know somebody gets one or whatever that seems to be more the case like accidental um as opposed to purposely uh hunting and stalking wild pigs in uh, in canada so hunting's not really um you know uh, a big player in controlling invasive wild pigs uh, in Canada. But um, yeah, they might be headed to a national park near you. Uh, They might be headed to your backyard. So uh, who knows what that would look like if you're out hunting in the woods. You know, I have to worry about grizzly bears uh, as all of a sudden you got to worry about wild pigs. You know, and you see all those pictures from over in Europe and France and stuff where they're chasing people on ski hills and beaches and all kinds of stuff. It's like, geez, that's the last we need is something else um, to like that to worry about. 
So also uh, sort of sticking with Jasper National Park, a couple of episodes ago, I covered a story about uh, an agreement that Parks Canada had recently entered into with two First Nations groups, uh, the Siemp and Stony First Nations uh, became two of the First Nations that are going to have, and I think they had a hunt in Jasper National Park uh, this fall. There was uh, like a couple of elk, uh, a couple of sheep, and I think there was some deer, uh, like just a small amount of animals. Uh, were part of this year's harvest. There was uh, a ceremony that was held in the park to celebrate the reestablishment of uh, First Nations hunting in the national park. So after I covered that story, another First Nation um, from Alberta, uh, a recognized First Nation in Alberta, um, it's a hard name for me to pronounce, but uh, I did a bit of a search, and it's the Asini Wuchiwinwak Nation. Um, so, write in and correct me if if uh, that's not the best way to say it. Uh, they come out afterwards with a formal statement uh, from that nation um, that they feel, uh, you know, that they weren't included in this agreement with the other nations that they also had traditional um, rights of, of hunting in uh, the Jasper National Park area. They felt uh, that the government didn't um, include them in those negotiations. The one article that I read said that the uh, government has denied that they were purposely left out of those conversations. And um, so anyways, there's uh you know, a bit of controversy around that, that uh, this other nation wants um, sort of the same concessions to allow uh, some traditional hunts in Jasper National Park. So where that stands right now, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, if more comes of it, I'll let you know. I don't expect anything's, you know, going to be announced on that maybe by next fall. Um, the additional uh, nation from Alberta might be included in in the hunt there, and they'll probably start have to having like separate times for different nation members to go in and um, practice their uh, hunting rights in the national park. So it's interesting. Um, I think our national parks might actually do well to have a little bit more hunting under certain circumstances, both. Uh, from constitutional hunters and non-constitutional hunters. I think there's some cool opportunities could be had in the name of conservation to allow some hunting. So um, that would obviously, to let non-Indigenous hunters into the national park under some sort of um, special permitting system would cause a pretty huge uproar. But, uh, you know, some of the money that's raised uh, on auction hunts uh, for conservation via um the permits that are auctioned off down at the big conventions down in the u.s um might be something worth considering doing uh they do do hunts in national um, parks and preserves in other parts of the world so i don't know i just think something canada should look into it's it's a cool conservation tool hunting you know it's uh could could play a role we allow fishing in the national parks so why not hunting? Manitoba now has a e-licensing system, an online system for uh, getting fish, uh, fishing and hunting licenses. Um, the Manitoba Wildlife Federation is um, saying this is a great thing uh, to be able to, you know, on short notice, log on, on online, pick up a big game or small game hunting license and, you know, and, and be able to go out uh, at spur of the moment to go hunting is kind of cool or depending on where you, where you are located, small towns, what, you know, whatever, uh, to be able to get your licenses that way. And yeah, I mean, uh, I make use of uh, e-licensing systems when I bought my, um, non-resident licenses to go to Alberta bird hunting this year and stuff, it was all done online. It's pretty cool, pretty convenient. 
I do kind of, you know, a, a little bit sort of feel like it's one of those little tiny things that's sort of lost in hunting. Um, just those old days of, you know, going to the sports shop, um, chit chatting, visiting, uh, picking up your hunting license, you know, just kind of all of that, you know, person to person contact with shop owners and, and all that kind of stuff. Hunters sort of be in there and having a coffee, do, doing whatever, talking about the upcoming season or, you know, government's doing this or the government's not doing that kind of stuff. I don't know. It was just, you know, the, the coffee shop kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's a small part of, I think, days gone by in hunting in this country. I think that, uh, that we've lost a little bit of that, uh, the chit chat in the, in, in the coffee shops and the sports stores. So, uh, a little bit to be missed, but the convenience of it, if it gets hunters out there, uh, and it makes hunting more accessible, then it's pretty cool that, uh, Manitoba now joins a lot of the other provinces with, uh, an e-licensing system. So, uh, earlier this fall, I believe it was in late October, actually, that the U.S. government um, imposed an exporting um, prohibition on civilian firearms and ammunition due to, um, if I remember the words, it was sort of like um, internal security and, you know, the, the U.S. is, you know, kind of got its foot in the door in a bunch of places of the world where, you know, military presence is escalating and stuff. And, and so I kind of interpret this to be one of those almost like, you know, sort of a pre-war um, measure that was taken in place to make sure that, um, you know, firearms and ammunition and all this sort of stuff are being prioritized to stay in the United States of America not being exported. I don't know if that was exactly why, or if it had to do with internal supplies of uh, firearms and ammunition to law enforcement or, or whatever in the U.S. There wasn't a lot of details around it. So when I first heard that, I was probably like a lot of Canadians going, oh, great, it's even going to be harder to find ammunition now. And um, so that's not the case. So the NATO countries have been uh, exempted from the civilian firearm and ammunition and firearm parts. Optics uh, were part of that as well. And so that stuff is still moving across the border. So one of the um, news stories that I read about this, um, they were saying like, don't panic, don't go stock up on toilet paper type thing, uh, or stock up on more ammunition. Cause that's, what's been happening the bath, the past several years, sort of the COVID slowdown is, you know, rather than someone, you know, saying, Oh, there's a couple of boxes of shells. I've been waiting for those. Um, rather than buying one or two that you would normally, it's like you buy all six on, on the store shelf or whatever. And then that's it. You know, nobody else can get them. So it was a bit of, bit of panic buying and hoarding, uh, uh, going on with ammunition definitely in Canada and uh, this um, U.S. pause in exporting probably triggered some of that uh, I even noticed it when I was going to buy some um, shotgun shells to go pheasant hunting in Alberta it was uh, I was sort of looking to see what was available locally uh, before deci before I decided to actually go, then this announcement by the U.S. came out. And then when I went to go pheasant hunting, I went back to check. Um, I was looking for a number five shot and uh, it's all cleaned out. So it, it looked like, you know, unless there was a rush of pheasant hunters going to Alberta, uh, that, um, you know, this U.S. announcement did cause a little bit of a uh, uh, panic buying uh, again. So anyways, hopefully that doesn't... Uh, doesn't have a ripple effect through to 2024. So it is getting hard to find ammunition. So earlier this month, the British Columbia government, the federal government and first nations in BC had a big press conference in Vancouver and announced uh, a new conservation agreement where they were going to, the, the BC and the federal government were going to put $1 billion uh, into conservation in British Columbia. And it was going to help contribute to this 
goal of the federal government of protecting 30% um, of each province and territory in Canada by 2030. So the 3030 um, conservation measure, which have some people concerned because they're worried about adding more protected lands to Canada uh, could potentially exclude hunters and anglers um, from the land. Anyways, um, that's what this $1 billion announcement was for. So I'm a little skeptical. So I've done a little bit of digging into this. So as far as I know, there's no plan that accompanied this $1 billion announcement to say, here's the plan that we're going to do all this stuff for conservation, endangered species in BC, yada, yada, yada. And here's the funding that goes with it. So it was just an announcement of pick a number out of the air, a billion dollars, and it's going to go to um, protecting 30% of the province. And they said it's also going to go to advancing reconciliation and stewardship um, partnerships with the province's uh, 200,000 First Nations people. So it sounds like there's going to be some um, capacity building, some tr funds transfers for First Nations-led conservation projects as well. Uh, which, which, you know, is cool. It's fine. They're, they're doing, uh, first nations are doing some great work, um, with some conservation projects, uh, especially the Clinziza, um, endangered caribou, uh, recovery program in Northeastern BC, uh, some extra funds there would, would certainly allow them to do more for endangered caribou. But one of the other reasons I'm skeptical is one, so there was really like no plan, um, just like, yay, a billion dollars. And then everybody's like, well, these are, you know, do this and do that with the, with the money. And it's like, to me, the plan should have been announced uh, or, or tabled and, you know, at least gone out for consultation and public input and then said, you need a billion dollars to fund that. Here's the money. Once the plan's finalized, it was just, an announcement of we're putting a billion dollars into something. And I'm skeptical of when governments do that because it's like just throwing money out there and then everybody's like, oh, they're the best ever. Um, so so here's here's kind of the, the rub uh, for me on this. This is not a new $1 billion that's being put into conservation in British Columbia. So part of that billion dollars already includes announcements that have been made by governments that they're going to put into conservation. So earlier this year, the BC government committed $100 million to a watershed security fund and $200 million to a land restoration fund. So they already announced a $300 million conservation investment. That $300 million is included in the new announcement of $1 billion. So it's not $1 billion plus $300 million. It's they're, it, they're already re-announcing money that they've already announced. So the federal government um, is putting in $500 million and it's using previously announced money, including a $50 million old growth protection fund um, that it was being given to British Columbia for protecting old growth. So it's, it's tricky. See, it's stuff like that, that, that frustrates me. Um, you know, they're political announcements. So they're, they're, announcing that they're spending money, then they're announcing they're spending more money, which is the same money that they'd already announced, but they're putting it under a different title and heading. So, you know, every quarter, you know, people are like, oh my God, they're putting more money into conservation. And it's not, they just keep announcing, you know, the same money over and over. Now, obviously there's some new money that's being come, that's coming into this, but not much. So British Columbia has already announced $300 million. It's only actually going to be putting in $200 million more in order to meet its $500 million commitment. Um, the federal government would obviously be putting in more money. So, you know, the fact that that has to happen with this conservation 
funding uh, agreement that they have to go back and recount money that's already been accounted for. Uh, and the fact that there is no plan, like I said, it just, it just makes me worried that this billion dollars is going to get spent over the X number of years. And at the end of it, there's really going to be not a lot to show. That's, that's the bottom line for me. Um, Cause generally for governments, it's about spending the money. Uh, it's not about delivering on, on results. So they haven't said um, we got a billion dollars to um, bring these 10 species off the endangered species list within the next 10 years. Like, and here's how we're going to do it. And this is the money that's needed. They're just, they're, they're, they meet the goal if they just spend the money, which spending money doesn't necessarily give you the conservation outcomes that everybody is expecting. So a little bit frustrating there. Uh, My vote would be that most of that money gets redirected away from government hands and given to organizations like Ducks Unlimited, who have a great reputation of, um, you know, putting money on the ground and protecting and enhancing uh, waterfowl habitat. Organizations like the BC Wildlife Federation who are doing a phenomenal job in the province of BC under its new executive director, Jesse Zeman, in delivering on-the-ground conservation projects, um, beaver reintroduction programs, wetland restoration uh, projects, constructing wetlands like, you know, um, uh, river cleanup you know, all this sorts of sort of stuff, um, Southern interior mule deer, uh, research projects and stuff. It's like, it's organizations like this that can then deliver outcomes for the people on behalf of the people is where this money should go. Uh, in, in my opinion, if you want to see some really, really good results. Now, speaking of a conservation project um, that's worthy of being funded, over in Ontario, um, the Forever, uh, the Georgian Bay Forever um, organization uh, in the Georgian Bay Township was awarded just under 10 grand for a um, collaborative project for controlling the invasive plant called Phragmites. Now, if you've never seen Phragmites, it's a grass that gets into wetland areas. And this stuff is freaking insane. It's like, grows like 30 feet tall and it's almost impenetrable. Like you can completely wipe out a wetland ecosystem when Phragmites gets into it. Uh, Years ago, when I was first learning about this and doing some research on it, apparently it's like traveling west from Ontario and it's in some of the prairie provinces and now, and it's moving um, th- along the railroad corridors. Um, so whether or not it's, uh, it's being picked up by trains or whether it can just leapfrog its way along the rail tracks or however it does it, um, this stuff is is insane. It's It almost looks like if you didn't know, like it was a grass, it... it um, it looks like like a bamboo forest and it's just this enormous grass and uh i think i covered a story on this last year in ontario where it's like so severe to control this stuff that one of the conservation groups actually got a permit from the province and i'm pretty sure this was in ontario or quebec um to spray it with um glyphosate and and just and kill the stuff uh just cutting it, it, it wants to re-sprout. But, uh, so this program, and I think this is pretty good value. Uh, so $9,800, um, funding, um, it's going to expand the program investment of a quarter of a million dollars, which has already been put in by the Ontario ministry of natural resources and forestry. And it's going to remove 20,000 square meters of fragment fragmites, um, which will, help restore about 220 kilometers of shoreline uh, in the Georgian Bay area. So that's cool. 
that's cool to see people invasive plants man are just uh just insane uh i was recently in alberta doing some pheasant hunting in an area um where the edge of the reservoir had a non-native plant growing in it um that uh it, it was a it's a it's a grass it's called reed canary grass it creates a lot of um, tall structure. Um, the pheasants can hide in it and provide shoreline, you know, erosion stability and all that kind of stuff. But man, when that stuff dies and lays over, it is almost an impenetrable mat of grass. Like nothing else grows in it. Um, I think the area, once the grass lays over, there's like no way the pheasants can get in it. There's probably mice and stuff, you know, live underneath of it. But this stuff is only like four or five feet tall. Uh, and it's just crazy to try to get get through it. So I'm just imagine what this Phragmites like, uh, you know, plant is, is like. It's just insane. In Quebec, um, the government did a huge, big hunter road check this year. Um, so 6,400 people were checked, uh, in a campaign that, uh, hit a couple of, uh, um, wildlife management unit areas out of those 6,400 people, um, 240 files, uh, were opened because of it. 500 charges were laid and a, and a little over a quarter of a million dollars of fines, um, I didn't actually do this, but let's uh, just quickly do the math here. Uh, let me pop my calculator open because math is not my strong suit in my head. So, um, so 500 charges, that's, that doesn't necessarily mean um, 500 people because one person could get four different charges. 240 files, I believe, would be a file was opened on an individual who may have got multiple um, charges. So let's see here. So 240 files divided by 6,400 people that were checked, uh, times 100 is, uh, 3.75% of hunters, um, were, uh, doing something wrong <laughs> in violation of the hunting laws. You know, that's a, that's, that's not, a bad number. Um, you know, it's, it's single digit. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy with that. Cause I think that reflects something that I always uphold is the vast majority of hunters are good people doing good things. And the ones that are doing something wrong are a minority. Uh, unfortunately, those minorities, you know, a lot of times make everybody look bad. Um, now, with that said, however, you know, the I'll, I'll, I'll read out what the infractions are here and 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 see what you think. So, most of those five hundred charges, a uh, quarter million dollars in a fine, were because of hunting without a license out of area hunting, exceeding the game limit, unlawful possession of game, failing to affix the transportation coupon to big game, possession of a loaded firearm in a vehicle, and hunting without a bib. So those are like the most basic of basic things, right? If you go in hunting, have a hunting license. If you make a mistake and shoot a two-point moose in the season as a three-point moose, it's like, okay. Um, but right out of the gate, not even having a hunting license, that's willful. Um, hunting out of out of area, um, I'm not sure what that means. Like if that means hunting in a in a non um, like like in a closed hunting area or if it's out of area hunt. Yeah, that would probably what it mean. I was thinking of somebody like from out of province, but uh, unlawful possession of game means that you've, you've got something that you weren't legally allowed to either 
uh, have, like it wasn't an open game species. I think one of the charges was for uh, endangered caribou uh, that somebody shot. So loaded firearms in a vehicle. Good God, in this day and age, like that is, you know, just carelessness. Um, so all in all, 3.75% of uh, the hunters, 240 files of 6,400 people checked, um, you know, is it's a low number. That that means most hunters are good people doing good, good things. Um, and the infractions that were here mostly just seemed to be like really, really stupid things that could have just easily have been taken care of. A story coming out of uh, central British Columbia, uh, a trapper in the central interior was concerned this fall when the forestry company started burning its slash piles left behind in logging operations. So a slash pile is when they log an area, they drag the trees out, they limb and top and cut defects out of the trees on the processing area, which we call a landing. Then all of that stuff that can't be used, logs go on logging trucks, go to the mill. All this other stuff is called slash. It's pushed up into a big pile and usually the year following um, so that it dries and cures. Contractors go out in the woods and they drive all over the place and they light up all of these piles. So this trapper said, you know, he'd been hearing stories about black bears uh, tunneling their way into these slash piles in the fall and deciding that that's going to be their den for the winter. Uh, basically like a gigantic beaver house is, is if you picture it that way. And these slash piles getting lit up in the late fall that could have a black bear denned up and hibernation inside. So the, the story I read said the trapper didn't want to jump to conspiracy sort of uh, conclusion. So he started investigating uh, for himself and he went to the local, one of the local fire departments who had actually gone out to do the burning of a slash pile for a landowner. Um, the fire crew would have went out to do it. And while they were there getting prepared to light the pile on fire, a black bear crawled out of the slash pile that they were about to torch because the bear was probably not quite fully out for the winter, heard stuff going on outside and came out to see what was going on. Um, so the trapper started doing some more investigation going out in the woods and found uh, three slash piles that had black bears denning in them. The endangered fisher uh, in the central interior of BC, we did a podcast last winter uh, on that with... Um, former um, BC Trappers Association president, um, um, Tim Killey, if you want to go back and listen to the whole issue with endangered fisher. So they'll also use uh, these slash piles. And, you know, this trapper is concerned for animal welfare and just lighting these piles up, especially once an animal goes into like full hibernation, like it's not coming to. Like it's, it's going to burn to death inside, inside these piles. And, you know, this is just one of the things that, uh, trappers get a bad rap and I don't like that. And cause they do a lot of good things and this was one of them. So this was not an anti fur trapping organization saying, Hey, you know, could be, this is a trapper. This was a trapper that was saying, Hey, you know, this is not good for wildlife and, and the article I read, the trapper said, yeah, the government's probably not going to change its policy on, on burning slash piles this year. But by raising the issue, he's hoping maybe there will be a policy change in the future and that maybe people will read the article and maybe change some practices this year uh, and maybe prevent some deaths of, of black bears. So um, good on this person. Trappers are conservationists and they do good work in the name of conservation for fur bearers and for all wildlife. So now the story of changing wildlife species names. So this fall, the American Ornithological Ornithological Society, that's a mouthful, the American Ornithological Society, 
so ornithology birds, um, has pledged to change all English bird names that honor people. And it's going to start with around 70 to 80 bird species in North America, including dozens of species that are either in Canada or pass through Canada. The reason is it is no longer socially acceptable in some circles for the peoples who these birds were named after uh, and who they were. Um, you know, there's different people who had birds named after them who were in the Confederate War in the U.S. and um, were thought to be slave owners or traders and, you know, these sorts of things. So just and not all of them but just generally any bird that was named after somebody um it's just not acceptable to the society that it be named after a person um so they want to do away with all of the birds names uh the birds that have names that named after people and i'll just give you a few of the examples so the cooper's hawk the Stellar's Jay, the Clark's Grebe, the Baird Sandpiper, Wilson's Snipe, Lincoln's Sparrow, Sprague's Pippet, the Clark's Nutcracker, and the Lewis's Woodpecker. So those are probably a few species there that you're going to recognize. Years ago, um, the which I always knew it as growing up was the Red Shafted Flicker. Its name was changed to the Northern Flicker. So this is where things get a little bit weird with doing this. So this, the red shafted, so this isn't like named after a person. This is just kind of a, a different nomenclature. They, they changed the name to the Northern Flicker. So Northern is supposed to represent Northern North America. But in this case, the red shafted Flicker now known as the Northern Flicker or the Common Flicker. Uh, it's got two names, which doesn't help with the clarification, actually, in my opinion. It's found all the way down through the United, through Canada, through the United States, uh, into Cuba and the Cayman Islands. And so they said, no, it's the Northern Flicker now, not the Red Shafted Flicker. And they got their whole underside or uh, bright orange. So the Northern Goshawk, um, very cool bird, uh, looks looks a lot like a um a peregrine falcon uh but it's got like a bright red ruby eye uh they're in the forest where i i am here in the rocky mountains of bc so they are they're pretty big um got a good 30 inch wingspan on them they are a forced hawk and they are a hunter of other birds so and man, these things can just rip like fighter jets through dense standing forests, you know, around trees and, you know, hunt uh, grouse and small songbirds and stuff. So anyways, the Northern Goshawk, uh, not long ago, was renamed the American Goshawk because it's not exclusively to the North of North America. So Northern would mean that its distribution in North America was like Northern Canada. Um, so the Northern provinces, uh, and the territories and maybe into Alaska, that's what Northern would mean if, if the bird had its name. So, um, it's now the American goshawk. Now I've got an issue with that as well, because in proper terminology, geographic terminology, America means North America. So it includes Canada and the United States. The Americas, plural, is North America, Central, and South America. So it's called the American Goshawk because it's found throughout Canada and the United States. So it's not just a Northern Hawk. It's now the American Goshawk. If you're to go anywhere, so this is the rub for me. If you were to go anywhere in the world, introduce yourself to somebody and they asked you where you're from and you said you were from America, they would go, oh, you're from the United States. 
you go, no, I'm from Canada. It's part of America. So in today's language, in my opinion, America means the United States of America. It no longer refers to America as the North American continent. So if you want to say North America, we say North America. America means the United States of America. So changing it to the American goshawk um, seems to be like putting national ownership on the bird on behalf of the United States of America. I've even heard the Rocky Mountain goat referred to as the American mountain goat, uh, the American black bear, uh, so on and so on. So makes sense if you think of America from the perspective of North America, but it doesn't make sense in most people's understanding that America means the United States. So this is how complicated this whole naming of bird things is and being politically correct nowadays with the naming of stuff. There are birds' names that are being changed because their names are culturally inappropriate. Um, inappropriate names were used from hundreds of years ago. Perfectly fine. Get rid of those. Those names, we don't need to have um, those names in the in the vernacular anymore. Um, you know, the whole idea of changing um, the Clark's Nutcracker, which uh, I know very well, it's a, it's a large bird, uh, like the size of a flicker. Uh, it's grayish colored. It looks like a whiskey jack, Canada J, those kind of gray and dark gray colors, but with a longer beard. Lives in, generally spends most of the non-winter season in the high alpine. So if you're a mule deer hunter, a sheep hunter, you'll probably see Clark's Nutcrackers up there. They are the famous bird that takes the seeds from the high elevation pine tree, the white bark pine tree, which is the largest pine seed that we have, uh, about the size of your baby finger, but it doesn't have a wing. So the only way the white bark pine can disperse its seeds on the landscape, um, especially where there's uh, high elevation wildfires, is the Clark's nutcracker. Grabs them, flies them, stashes them. These stashes throughout the Rocky Mountains have also become uh, known to scientists in recent decades as being a very important food source for grizzly bears because uh, these caches get large. And if a grizzly bear is up there purposely looking around in the alpine for these big seed caches that the, that the um, Clark's Nutcracker is, is uh, stashing, they can get like hundreds of, you know, calories from, it's like eating sun, big, stash of sunflower seeds they're so nutritious so the clark's nutcracker i'm not sure if it was named after you know clark from lewis's lewis and clark expedition um or if it's a different uh different person i haven't looked into it that closely but like i mean i've i've known clark's nutcracker my whole life it's i probably won't change the lewis's woodpecker uh it's a cool little um brilliantly colored woodpecker it's uh rare in my part of the world as well it's like got pink and emerald green on it and like it's very tropical looking um it's the lewis's woodpecker i mean it's uh it is what it is so now i'm going to get into the part which is you probably been waiting for because it's the title of this episode. Let's switch over to mammals now and apply this thinking that's going on in the American Ornithological Society. So the premise is wildlife who are named after people with English names is no longer socially acceptable and they're going to be changed. Dozens and dozens of birds are going to have their English names removed, people's English names removed from them. So now let's switch to mammals. Let's switch over to two iconic game animals on the North American continent, one of which is almost exclusively lives in the province of British Columbia, the stone sheep and the doll sheep, which is Alaska, Yukon, and a small portion of British Columbia and the Northwest Territories. So I'm not sure whether, if you're a sheep aficionado, you will know this. It is not stone sheep, like stone as in the rock sheep. It is not doll sheep as in D-A-L-L. They are possessive names. It's stones apostrophe S and it's dolls apostrophe S. Because 
Both those mountain sheep, thin horns, were named after people. The doll's sheep was named for the Alaskan explorer W.H. Dahl. The stone sheep was named for a Montana naturalist, A.J. Stone. So they're both possessive names, apostrophe S, because they were named after people. There are societies to do with the naming conventions of mammals like there is birds. So my question is, when are they going to identify the stone sheep and doll sheep are no longer socially acceptable to be called those names because they're English names named after English people? As a hunting community, what do you think of that? Are you going to stand up and protect the name of Stone's sheep or Doll's sheep? Um, do both these individuals have upstanding um, reputations back in the day? Uh, they weren't slave owners or, you know, or, or, or whatever um, that would tarnish their reputation or their name being attached to an animal that offends people. Uh, even at that, the fact that they're just English names attached to an animal is part of what people are saying is inappropriate uh, in today's age. So we could just call them stone sheep and doll sheep and drop the possessive apostrophe S off of it. But people would still know that that originally stone was named after the man and doll was the man because that was their actual name right like aj stone and wh doll um so that doesn't change the fact the apostrophe s is saying that they're wh dolls sheep and aj stones sheep like possessive it's their sheep right um yeah i i think this would cause a huge fervor in the hunting community uh, to change those iconic animals names um, you know after that we get into stuff like the rocky mountain elk right well it doesn't live exclusively in the rocky mountains um, like i said the rock uh, you know the rocky mountain goat uh, so on and so on so but but those are geographic names um, and which is kind of uh, similar but but a different different story so you know this, the stone sheep, you know, like the logical thing is, is going to, somebody's going to want to have, some society's going to want to change its name to the gray sheep and to the white sheep. That seems the two most logical name changes, right? Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, send me some comments and thoughts on that. Uh, you know, what, what would you do if this was put forth and demands were made um, to formally change the name? Because these societies can change the name and put it on a list, but something like stone sheep and doll sheep, uh, it doesn't change the, the scientific name. Um, you know, obvious doll eye stone eye would still be, um, would stay the same. Uh, so they would actually literally have to go after the scientific name to get rid of stone eye. So it's the, it's the thin horn sheep, obvious doll eye. The stony variant of that is the stone sheep. They would have to get rid of stone eye out of this scientific name as well. Um, to really erase uh, AJ Stone's um, uh, claim to the stone sheep, I guess. So, uh, what would you do? What would you do as as hunting community if this if if you were faced with this Roosevelt's elk? Right, there's another one. I never just that just ping popped into my head. Right, um, so maybe there's there's a few more out there. I know I know mule deer are just mule because it's got the big ears like a mule. Right, like it's not not like named after the person mule. Um, anyways, that, that I know of. So, um, so anyways, I'm putting this on your radar screen because I think it's going to happen. I think the, uh, stone sheep and doll sheep names are going to eventually be challenged. It's only a matter of time. Um, so what is the hunting community going to do to defend against that? Do you want to defend against it or do you want the names changed? Um, the Chadwick Ram, the world record stones sheep, um, taken by Chadwick, the man himself, uh, is written and considered by Boone and Crockett to be the finest 
big game specimen to be taken of any species in the world. Uh, so imagine that piece of hunting history to be erased. So what are your thoughts? Let me know. All right, everybody, you're up to speed on what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode.